Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode number four of Push Dose EMS brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. My name is Jeff Batch. I'll be your host today. I am the clinical education QA manager for the office. I brought some friends along for the ride today going from the, I'm gonna go straight down my list of cameras that I can see. So joining me today, uh, QA supervisor, Linda Matrish, welcome. Good morning, everybody. Uh, next on my list, uh, one of our EMS fellows, Dr. Patrick Sinclair. Welcome, Patrick. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Next down, another one of our EMS fellows, uh, Dr. Tom Engel. Welcome, Dr. Engel. Hey, everyone. How you doing? And your system medical director, the man, the myth, the legend, back from baby duties and all the other responsibilities, Dr. Ben Weston. Welcome, Dr. Weston. Thank you. Happy to be here. And last but not least, but he's on the bottom of my list, uh, Associate Medical Director for the system, uh, Dr. Matt Chin. Welcome, Dr. Chin. Good morning. And welcome to everybody out there listening live and to those listening recorded uh, now on Podbean and iTunes. Uh, we're excited to get into episode four. Our big topic for today is going to be uh, taking a look at pediatric seizures. Before we dive too much into the medicine, just a couple updates for our folks here in the system. Uh, EMS Division Director Dan Pojar wishes he could have been here today. Uh, unfortunately, he had a late night with other responsibilities, so he's asked me just to relay a few messages to, the, to everybody. Uh, first, there's apologies for missing out. He wished he could be here. Uh, secondly, uh, just continue doing what you do, being the role models for the system, wearing your appropriate PPE or masks out when you're out on calls. Uh, keep everybody healthy, home, and safe. A big new Zoll live stream. Everyone's probably aware by now that the new monitors have been distributed out to the system. A good number of them are live stream capable, and that should be going live in the next probably 48 hours. Number of notices prepared, training is prepared. Uh, that will be coming your way. Keep an eye on your Target Solutions accounts for the training on the Zoll live stream. A little bit of motherly nagging for you. As of this morning, I have 51 providers still in the county that have not renewed their national registry. Friendly reminder that is due by the end of June. June 30th is the deadline for your renewal for national registry. Uh, all the liaisons for the departments have received lists. And they will be in contact if you're still outstanding. And then on that topic of renewal, state license renewal, I know everyone's chopping at the bit to get some info on state license renewals. Good news. We have entered pretty much everybody in the system into a level appropriate refresher within e-licensing. So if you know what to do and you know the process, go ahead. You're free to renew. There's one department outstanding that I don't have a roster from. They know who they are. Uh, so once they get that, I will get them all squared away as well. Uh, friendly reminder, this is a change this year with the state license renewal process. You will need to upload a copy of your AHA relevant cards. So BLS, ACLS, PALS cards. So have a digital copy of those on hand when you go in to renew. And for those watching live, uh, Dr. Weston, just make a note in chat if you haven't had a chance to see. As we go through this, if you have any system questions, questions about the topic areas, anything for the medical direction, feel free to throw them up in the chat. 
and we will tackle any questions that come through at the end. So with that, as far as office updates go and a little bit of housekeeping, I know Dr. Weston has a few other updates and some of the big things that he's been working on the last couple months. So Dr. Weston, take it away. All right, thank you, Jeff. So first, a quick note, uh, guideline and policy updates. So the update video is up on Target Solutions. We'll go live with new guidelines on June 15th. Uh, there's a number of minor changes as well as some major guideline overhauls in there. We've worked to implement the most up-to-date uh, science and knowledge. Um, we've also worked hard to integrate your suggestions and your requests for changes and for clarifications. Uh, a kudos out to our Guidelines and Policy Subcommittee, or GAPS, led by Linda Matrich, and uh, involving several of our department personnel as well. So thank you to them for their, their hard work on improving our guidelines and policies. Next, just a quick COVID-19 update. Uh, so when COVID-19 first started affecting our communities, we saw that all 15 fire departments in our counties were really the first to recognize the importance and act on the need for teamwork and cooperation. So we've seen our departments work together like never before in getting 911 dispatch centers on the same page for COVID-19 awareness and alerts to our uh, EMS personnel. We've seen deployment of COVID-specific med units to protect our providers and our patients while conserving PPE. And we've seen the development and implementation of the COVID-19 regional response plan with response vehicles, reserve response vehicles. <clears throat> so I've really been proud uh, and honored to have been part of this EMS system and to have seen really individuals at all levels, from our chiefs, our operational leaders, uh, line personnel, all the way through step up, and working on the front lines to keep our community safe and as healthy as we can. Each of these efforts aided in the first stage of our pandemic. We've, we've pulled back some of them, but we've stuck them on the shelf. We haven't gotten rid of them. Uh, we may need to pull them back out. We've reached the end of, of this first stage of the pandemic, but we know there's much more, uh, much more to go with COVID-19. I think if you think of it as a baseball game, I think maybe we're at the end of the first inning. If we're lucky, maybe the second inning, and I think that's really about it. Uh, we're going to see more cases, we're going to see more hospitalizations, and unfortunately more deaths. And if history of infectious diseases and pandemics is any sort of guide, uh, unfortunately we're going to see more peaks uh, and, and more severe surges than we've definitely experienced yet now that we necessarily pull back our stay-at-home orders. But I think that we as an EMS system are, uh, I believe, prepared, as prepared as we possibly can be for what's to come. So. Uh, just to finish up, thank you for all you've done. Uh, thank you for the continued work, the sacrifice, uh, and the care for our community. So please stay safe, and I will hand it back to Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Sure. Thank you, Dr. Weston. Uh, some, definitely some great thoughts, and kudos out to the system for all the hard work that they've done, and yourself as well. Uh, just one other thing, just one other reminder, uh, depending on when you're listening to this out there in the system, if you're uh, have questions, comments, concerns, feedback on the guideline updates. We do have some town hall meetings scheduled uh, for June, next week, June, June 9th, 10th, and 11th, all at 10.30. Uh, Zoom link is up in Target Solutions. Uh, so if you'd like to provide any feedback or have some questions answered, that's the opportunity to get in touch with our medical direction and our GAPS team. All right, on to the topic du jour. 
uh, that being pediatric seizures. So in reviews, going through our CQ cases, we've seen many recently, not many, but a bunch, a significant number that's worth touching on. There's been some guideline updates on this topic area as well. Uh, so first I'd like to drag Dr. Chin into the conversation here, just to kind of give us a little breakdown, similar to what we did last month on some of the pathophys, uh, what's going on in the brain and the body uh, during that seizure process. So Dr. Chin. Yeah, Jeff, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk here. And I, I just wanted to take a couple minutes here just to adjust, uh, address a little bit like you talked about, about the pathophysiology of uh, pediatric seizures. Um, so we know that um, seizures uh, in children, there are several um, you know, etiologies of seizures that can include genetic abnormalities, structural lesions, uh, provoked seizures. So we think about febrile seizures or electrolyte abnormalities. Uh, in particular in children, febrile seizures are probably the most common type with an incidence of about three to 8% uh, in children less than five years of age. In terms of seizures overall, partial complex seizures are likely the most common type in both adults and children uh, overall. Uh, and to talk just a little bit about how a seizure kind of behaves. What we think of a seizure is basically a clinical manifestation of uh, excessive kind of discharge of abnormal electrical activity in the brain, particularly in the cerebral cortex uh, by the neurons that reside there. Generally, these um, neurons fire in an asynchronous way to facilitate learning or memory or sensory input or other kind of uh, particular functions. But when they discharge synchronously and excessively and often recruit neurons in the surrounding areas, we see that manifest as a seizure. Um, epilepsy in particular is usually defined as uh, two or more of unprovoked afebrile seizures um, in patients. And so what happens is we can uh, try to identify the source of these seizures by using things such as EEGs. Uh, which are really electrodes that are trying to identify that focus of ictogenesis or that area where the seizure originates from and then recruits other neurons to fire causing again this seizure-like activity. Um, so when we find that zone of ictogenesis or that area the seizure originates from, it's usually a, a small part of the brain, about a centimeter squared uh, area of the brain that discharges in what's called a spike and wave pattern. This is what um, our neurology friends are looking for on an EEG when they're trying to identify an area of the brain. They basically use those electrodes that are placed on the brain. If you've ever seen that on a television episode or in the hospital, um, they're using all those electrodes to really try to localize where the seizure is coming from. And oftentimes where it's coming from can lead them to what type of seizure activity that patient may have. Um, as you know, in, in kids, like we talked about before, kind of febrile seizures are probably the most common etiology in children. Other things we talked about, again, genetic or structural lesions, um, head injuries, all these types of things. Um, some of those things where we talk about fevers and infections and head injuries are really referred to as symptomatic seizures um, because they come from a source um, as opposed to kind of epilepsy, which has no identifiable source um, for the cause of uh, seizures. Um, beyond that, we know that there's a general kind of uh, uh, timeline for seizures after the kind of convulsive-like episodes that we see in the generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Patients often have what's called that postictal phase or that area of time where they're kind of confused or agitated or not behaving normal. Um, Beyond that, kind of um, just thinking about seizures in general, I think I'm going to uh, defer to my colleagues who are going to talk a little bit more uh, in detail about kind of the presentation of particular types of seizures and the management of that. 
Um, so again, I'd be happy to answer any questions. I didn't want to kind of go um, too much in depth on this, but wanted to make sure you guys had a good understanding of kind of what the pathophysiology is of seizures. And then I'll turn it back to Jeff and my colleagues to kind of further explain uh, how they present and how we manage those from an EMS perspective. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Chin. Uh, yeah, it's a great kind of overview and brief of, of some of the pathophys of what's going on there in the brain. And I know there can certainly be a, a number of different origins and a number of different presentations uh, when it comes to these seizure patients. Uh, not everybody is a fish out of water uh, flopping on the ground or on the couch. Uh, and we can certainly see it in different ways. And some of those presentations are easy to overlook and mistake for some other conditions. So uh, Dr. Sinclair, I know you had a chance to take a look at some of these different presentations and uh, what are some things that our providers should be looking for out there in the field? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. And um, it, there's a wide variety of uh, various presentations. I mean, whole books have been written just purely on this topic. And our neurologist colleagues and friends um, are constantly kind of rewriting those books as they learn more about seizures. So it's definitely an evolving body of knowledge that can be very challenging to kind of keep up with. Um, so I know that uh, Dr. Chin actually uh, kind of cited a few types of seizures and kind of the pathophys, and I'll just kind of run through some of those things. And uh, Jeff, as you were initially kind of alluding to, you know, the classic seizure type that we all know and think about is this grand mal, this tonic-clonic seizure, right, where, uh, you know, people will say fish flopping on the ground or something like that. Um, so that kind of a seizure we classify as a general seizure, generalized seizure. Um, and then in contrast, another type of generalized seizure would be an absence seizure, or other term for that is petite mal seizure. So generally, those, that kind of a seizure involves more of a staring spell where the patient is, is kind of unresponsive and not moving. You can't really rouse them, and it lasts maybe a couple minutes before the patient then goes into a postictal state and eventually resolves. So the classic things that we think about with a generalized type seizure is that there is this loss of consciousness. You know, the patient will report not realizing that anything happened, but everybody else has kind of witnessed these types of symptoms that, that we're talking about. Uh, they generally involve both sides of the brain. Um, so on an EEG, you will find that, that uh, synchronous waveforms that uh, Dr. Chin's talking about happening in both uh, hemispheres of the brain. Um, so that kind of rounds out what we would call as generalized seizures. So you have the petite mal or the absence seizure and the tonic-clonic seizure, the grand mal seizure that we kind of know about. Um, there is also focal seizures that uh, Dr. Chin also alluded to. Um, these can be simple focal seizures where you have kind of just an abnormal movement of one arm or you might have like a lip smacking or something like that. And then more complex focal seizures um, so that, per, that individual generally also involves some loss of consciousness, confusion, dazed, as well as potentially that, that kind of focal um, abnormal movement of a leg or an arm or something like that. So those are also focal seizures. To further kind of make this more complex, um, we can kind of talk about things as epileptiform or epileptic seizures versus non-epileptiform or non-epileptic seizures. So epileptic seizures, we will find those abnormal discharges that Dr. Chin's talking about versus non-epileptic. We, we simply haven't been able to find those on those EEG studies and neurologist evaluation. Um, some people will kind of call 
the non-epileptic forms or the ones that we don't find any kind of hard evidence for on that EEG, a pseudo seizure. Um, however, the neurologist will start to kind of make delineations there. So pseudo seizures by definition are also known as kind of these psychogenic um, non-epileptic form seizures or we'll call them PNES, okay, type seizures. Um, this can be very complex then, but it generally involves getting a good history and being able to say, hey, um, you know, there, there was some sort of psychologic stressor or something going on uh, with the patient when this initially occurred. Um, also, um, you may find that with these kind of pseudo seizures, um, patients, if you're able to kind of distract them from potentially the stressor or what's going on in the environment, they'll usually stop, okay? Um, you know, other key points that kind of uh, differentiate, say, a seizure in general from other, other things going on, so like a, a syncopal episode or something like that, is one, the presence of that postictal state. Um, two, uh, that lateralized tongue biting that we, we kind of trained and learned about. Um, other things are kind of a deviated gaze is more common to be seen in like a true seizure state versus versus a syncope or something like that. Um, also, lip smacking is pretty high up there for being more of a seizure-like activity. Um, and then I think the final thing, especially in the pediatric population, is evaluating for um, a febrile illness that could be suggestive of kind of a febrile seizure. There's probably a lot more that I could probably get into and talk about. Um, and if you guys have any other thoughts, we can chat about that too. Um, but that kind of rounds out this kind of very big and atypical presentations. I think the real key is to kind of look for that um, lateralizing gaze or that, that tongue biting or that postictal state and take a very good history. Um, you know, chances are these patients have kind of been evaluated before and have some of this history that will really guide your treatment. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Clay. Just a couple follow-up questions, and I'll let any of the docs or anybody here jump in. Uh, so as we look at this wide range of different presentations and different ways that someone might be presenting with uh, seizure activity, we'll touch a little bit on treatment just briefly. I know we'll go a little bit more in, in detail, uh, but with some of the, the, the simple focal seizures and somewhere it might be a localized arm twitching, uh, lip smacking, do we need to be concerned with this aggressive treatment as we would with like a grand mall where there might be more concern for airway compromise or, or less respiratory drive? Um, and on the flip side of that, is there any issue with over treating? So if, if you're not on, if you're not a hundred percent sure that it might be a, a petite mall or a focal seizure, um, but you want to err on the side of caution and treat, is that okay? That's a very good question, Jeff. Um, I would say that the real reason that we would have to intervene in the pre-hospital setting and a lot of times even in emergency medicine is with that concern for airway compromise. Um, the other thing is, is that if you're talking about a, uh, a seizure that ends up lasting greater than five minutes, you really need to intervene because you're starting to run into that uh, definition of status. Um, we know that not only are we dealing with an airway compromise, but if you do have kind of seizure activity that continues and isn't aborted, this can have some detrimental effects on the brain. 
in some of those smaller seizures where, um, for lack of a better word, smaller, but I would say focal seizures like we were just talking about, um, generally these patients um, a kind of self-terminate um, and there's no further intervention. So I would say as long as it's focal, it's not affecting the patient's airway, you have a little bit more time. Um, on the flip side, like you mentioned, and again, uh, my colleagues here can definitely chime in on their thoughts on this too, is uh, on the flip side with more aggressive, uh, there's more aggressive treatments like um, we'll talk about a little bit later, but the use of midazolam. Um, I would say that there, there's nothing wrong uh, with erring on the side of treating these patients. Um, because like I said, if, if, if you let this go on for too long, you run into airway compromise and further neurologic effects down the line. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Sinclair. That, yeah, that definitely cleared up my questions on it. Uh, so as we go into this, the, you know, the assessment and recognizing that the seizure activity is happening uh, and then really getting in and managing that seizure patient um, becomes key. So I'm going to throw over to Dr. Engel yeah, and hey. give you a chance to kind of talk about the management of those seizing patients and, and how we're treating. Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest thing you have to first start with, how are you going to actually get to a seizing patient? Like what things should make you think that you're going to be encountering a seizing pediatric patient? So some things that you might get called out for would just be simple shaking, altered mental status, syncope or unconscious patients can sometimes have been seizing, or you get called out for a pediatric seizure, um, which makes it a little bit easier. So once you show up to this patient, you want to obviously make sure that they're uh, that they're breathing and they have a pulse. Uh, sometimes we, our providers or many providers throughout the country will get confused in somebody who they think is actively seizing and they're actually in cardiac arrest. So I think the initial management is to make sure this person has a pulse and then get a little bit more information. Um, if they're actively seizing in front of you, hopefully somebody's there and says they've been seizing um, or if no one's around, you're able to identify a seizing patient. Uh, so this kind of takes us into our seizure algorithm here uh, that we have for OEM. And I think the one of the first steps that we have on there after we've established usual care for the patient is considering checking a blood sugar. Now, um, what is the data behind checking a blood sugar? Uh, so we actually, there's a study that was done in 2016 uh, in California. They had 770 pediatric patients with either with witness seizures in the pre-hospital setting. And they reviewed their charts for hypoglycemia in the pre-hospital setting as well as in the emergency department. And of those 770, only four of the patients actually had true hypoglycemia, and only two of them required treatment. So that tells us a couple of things. Um, it tells us that in pediatric patients, uh, the likelihood of hypoglycemia causing the seizure and being one of and being the uh, nidus for the seizure is really, really low. Now, I am not here to tell you that you should not be checking blood sugars on your pediatric seizure patients. That absolutely needs to be happening. It's an easy, quick painless test that can give us a lot of information if it comes back positive and it can be detrimental if we miss this hypoglycemia but i think that at the same time when you're checking a blood sugar you need to be well our algorithm has this above considering medications you need to be working through the considerations and the application of the medications that we're going to talk about soon concurrently and the reason we taught we think you need to do this concurrently is just like dr sinclair said after five minutes um this person who's actively seizing is in status and 
after five minutes, it's much less likely that your medications are gonna be effective. So getting them on board early is important. And if you're gonna wait that 60 seconds to five minutes of time that we know it takes providers to get an actual blood sugar, you're gonna be well behind your treatment algorithm. So when we get down to initial treatment of pediatric seizures, checking a blood sugar is extremely important, but should be done concurrently with considering treatment for an actively seizing patient. Yeah, I know, I know in initial education and through a long, you know, a long laundry list of uh, trainings on seizure patients that, you know, that blood sugar is hyped and hyped and hyped uh, is a very important key measure, but it's good to know that, you know, it can be done. It doesn't have to be like the first thing that you do for your patient. Assess, treat, manage, get that blood sugar when you get a chance to get vital signs, because it's probably not going to change much in the, you know, two or three minutes it'll take you to get some medications on board and try and cut out that seizure. Yeah, you know, fortunately we work in a system where most of the time we have really good support, um, at least more than two providers on scene. And, you know, if you, if you start, the biggest problem that we see is that people are waiting for this blood sugar level to pop up. If you start it really concurrently with your treatment stuff, hey, we're, get, we're supporting the airway, we're having someone work on, a, on a, a blood sugar, and we're actively drawing meds at the same time, it allows you to not get behind in the game. It's kind of like cardiac arrest management. We know we have a couple things that we list as one, two, three, and four, but we're doing them simultaneously. And if you don't do them simultaneously, you can often um, get really behind uh, the eight ball for these children. Actually, thank you. you touched briefly on some of the medications and treatments. What are we looking at as treatment-wise for these patients? Well, now we know we've got a seizure patient. We, we've done that part of the assessment. Uh, now we're ready to dive into that treatment phase. Yeah. Wow, we have a lot of options for uh, for treatments of pediatric seizures. There is uh, multiple. There are multiple different medications, and there's multiple different routes to give those medications. So, how did we end up getting to what? we use currently. Well, you know, about 25 years ago, we didn't even know that benzodiazepines are our first line uh, medication to abate seizures. We actually were giving phenytoin, which is an anti-epileptic, um, prior to the benzodiazepines. So now that we know that benzodiazepines are our go-to medication, um, we kind of then had to figure out, well, how quickly do we use them and when do we use them and which benzodiazepine? Well, over the last five to 10 years, we really know that a, uh, stopping a seizure as quick as possible is really, really important. Um, after five minutes of continued seizure activity, medications are less likely to be effective to stopping a seizure. And at, between five and 30 minutes, people who are seizing have active permanent brain loss or brain cell death. So it's really important to get this medication on early and to get it in the body as quickly as possible. You know, um, about 10, oh, 10 years ago, we were trying to figure out what medication was best. And at that time, we were really using lorazepam or diazepam, both IV, um, because we didn't really have any other options of a non-refrigeratable, non- or intramuscular medication that we could use. But when midazolam came out, which is also known as Versed, it's stable outside of a refrigerator and it's been given intramuscularly. So people were like, well, which medication is better? We've got two IV, even three IV medications and one we can give intramuscularly. We could give them all intramuscularly. One's easier to carry. So they went and did this Rampart trial, which is really the rapid anticonvulsant medication prior to arrival trial that came out in 2012. They looked at a thousand seizing patients in the pre-hospital setting. They wanted to see if Intermuscular. Geese are definitely there to say hi. I think uh, my dogs are all coming out to say hi to you guys. <laughs> I'll be on my 
wife. She's sitting on the porch. So they wanted to see if intramuscular midazolam or IV lorazepam was more effective at stopping a seizure prior to emergency department arrival with a single dose of medication. And what they ended up showing was that intramuscular midazolam was able to accomplish this 73% of the time when IV lorazepam was only able to accomplish this 63% of the time. Um, so also those who got the intramuscular midazolam were, had fewer hospitalizations and shorter time in the ICU. So ultimately, why do we think that intramuscular midazolam was the answer? Well, we think it was because it was faster to give. Um, you don't have to establish an IV. And I think even our best meds who are, can put an IV in basically anybody will tell you that there's a lot of patients, especially pediatric patients, that can be really difficult to get IV or IO access on. So getting the medication in IM is faster and just as effective. And I think if you look then at our seizure algorithm, that's why we've kind of addressed it as if the patient already has an IV, go ahead and give that midazolam IV. If they don't have an IV, you should consider giving this medication IM. And if you can't give it IM, you could give it IN. But I'll be 100% honest, I can't think of a scenario when you can't give a medication intramuscularly. And I know we love intranasal medications, especially in pediatric patients, because it's not supposed to hurt them and such. But I strongly believe that in a pediatric patient who is seizing, you should go ahead and give the intramuscular medication because I know it's faster and I know it's easy to deliver. And I know that they're going to get good absorption and sometimes up the nose they don't. So I think the recommendation after all of this research and what we know works best for patients is in a pediatric seizing patient, give them the correct dose of intramuscular midazolam as quickly as possible while you're actively getting that blood sugar at the same time. Is there a preferred site then for that IM injection in your peds? I'll be is honest. I, I don't know the answer to that. Hey, Linda, do you know the answer to that? I don't mean <laughs> to put you on the spot. I mean, I think it, it, quite often, and Linda, you're muted if you're trying to talk. Oops, sorry uh, about that. I would know, say that. I think oftentimes it depends on the size of the, the patient. You know, adult, you know, trying to get a couple milliliters into a deltoid on a you know, five or 10 kilo kid can be difficult and going into that thigh, into that glute is probably a better route. And I know we just did a lot of work on um, the guideline updates with those IM sites. So I'll let Linda, I'll stop talking over you now and let you answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think that our added uh, practical skill for intramuscular um, administration, will we'll give a good picture guideline of the site options uh, and what is a, a better site for uh, age and for the amount of medication. So it really depends on, you know, how much volume you're going to be giving and whether you have, you know, a child versus adult. This document will give great guidance for that. Excellent. So they can definitely get out and review that. Should be up and posted. Uh, so we definitely, now we've gotten to the point where we've recognized that the patient was seizing, we've, we've treated, we've assessed, um, and now we're kind of getting into that airway management. And I know this is where we're going to keep Linda unmuted here and, and chatting with us because there's been a number of CQIP cases lately. And I don't even know what the time frame on these are, but there's been a couple um, with some pediatric seizures and some airway management. So I'll let Linda take it away on some of the CQIP cases. I know the docs will probably jump in here uh, periodically with a little bit of advice and some medicine on it. So Linda, take it away. Thank you, Jeff. Um, as we've been discussing uh, pediatric seizures, um, it brings uh, 
to light the cases that have been reported to our system or have been reviewed by our system involving uh, seizure patients who are pediatric and um, have um, unrecognized seizures or ongoing airway issues. And um, in the past year, we've had several of these cases. And this has actually led to us revising the seizure protocol to to um, state clear expectations regarding um, monitoring for seizures and monitoring for airway compromise. So uh, keep that in mind as we review these cases, but we've, we picked out a few that kind of highlight some of the issues that, that come up um, that uh, are good reminders for all our providers. So um, our first uh, case to review uh, is involves an eight-year-old patient um, who was described as uh, being transported with altered mental status after a seizure. The concern from the hospital was that when the patient arrived, the O2 saturations were at 65%. And um, the staff wondered if hypoxemia could have been more readily identified and if appropriate interventions were initiated. So when we took a look at that case uh, and read the report, uh, it mentioned that the patient had had a seizure at school and this was a witness seizure that uh, was described as starting with a distant stare, uh, followed by clenching of uh, the child's hands and uh, reported five to six minute duration. Um, when the uh, EMS arrived, the patient uh, was not no longer seizing um, and had uh, blood sugar of 374 and had no medical history, no seizures, no diabetes or anything like that. Um, when we reviewed the um, information from the ZOL and, and uh, the information in the report, there was no indication of any SpO2 monitoring um, throughout the care of this patient. Um, so you know, this, this case highlights the importance of, of uh, monitoring the patient's SpO2 during transport, uh, watching closely for uh, recurring seizure, um, monitoring the patient's, um, you know, oxygen level. Uh, again, you know, these patients are post-dictal. They, they, they may not be ventilating well. Um, th these patients actually required close monitoring. And sometimes I think we think of seizures as like a more routine kind of an EMS call, but there's potential there for uh, missing some clear signs of compromise. Um, Dr. Engel, what would you like to add to this? Linda, I think you hit it right on the head. After a pulse, your oxygen saturation is the next most important vital sign in a seizing pediatric patient. That should be popped on as quick as you can. Um, and that should be monitored. Every pediatric, every seizing uh, post-seizure patient should have continuous pulse oximetry um, well during transport. Uh, it, it would be, I would say it would be st easily standard of care. And the biggest thing with pediatric patients is I'm not sure if this patient was having non-convulsive seizures or just really tired after being post-dictal. And I think we all know if we manage uh, pediatric asthmatic kids, you got to if you pull their shirt up, it often really surprises you as to how they're ventilating underneath there, meaning that often they can hide hypo or hyperventilation. Uh, if you don't examine them properly. And sometimes even a bundled up kid or a kid you don't look at may be hypoventilating, which could have also contributed to his persistent hypoxemia. Um, so early pulse ox administration and continuous pulse ox monitoring with 
good management and watching these children for underventilation is really important. We're going to touch on a couple of those points again over these next few cases that you talk on. Excellent. And, you know, thinking about monitoring this patient during transport, um, I know quite often the, um, you know, the paramedic may be seated in the jump seat, which is behind the patient, and, and maybe that patient is not in full view. Um, we encourage you to position yourself so you can see the patient fully during transport and, and assess them frequently. Um, make sure you're in a position to do that. Uh, and then our guideline, again, for seizures that's been updated, reflects these expectations, continuous SpO2 monitoring, patient in full view during transport, and consideration of end title as well. Um, so moving on to another case. Um, so this uh, second case involves a two-year-old child um, who arrived to the ED uh, unresponsive. Um, the the, the report described a patient that uh, was, um, had an IV, had an IO, and they were assisting with BVM. Uh, when the patient arrived to the ED, the patient was in a car seat, and uh, the providers were attempting with BVM to ventilate the patient, um, but the ventilation was inadequate, and um, the patient was described as being slumped in the car seat, uh, a one person doing, you know, a BVM, but that the mask was off to the side of the face. So uh, the staff was very concerned uh, about this patient who was then intubated actually in the ED. So when we, when we reviewed uh, that case, the uh, transport was, or the patient was described as uh, presenting with shallow breath sounds, warm, dry skin, rapid, weak pulse with good cap refill, and the patient appeared to be postictal. Um, the pupils were reactive, but the patient had a wide blank gaze, was the description. Um, and then the, the family on scene explained that the patient was born with prolonged QT, but had no history of seizures, um, and that the med unit assisted ventilations with high flow O2 uh, provided uh, access, and, then, and that the patient remained lethargic throughout uh, emergency uh, transport. Um, so again, we, we really didn't see continued SpO2 monitoring with this patient during transport. Um, and you know, again, this child was, was, was very sick. This patient required intubation on arrival. So uh, again, this highlights the you know, recognition of uh, deteriorating patients or patients that are not oxygenating well during transport. This is something that we can treat and we can prevent. Um, if, if ventilations need to support, be supported, then support them, uh, but, but do it effectively. Uh, Dr. Engel, what would you like to add to this? As always, Linda, you nailed that one too. So um, when pediatric patients require assisted ventilations, you have to think they're pretty tired. Remember, kids tend to do okay until they fall off the edge. Um, if you're trying to support pediatric ventilations, kids should, we got to remember the pediatric airway. They have huge heads. Um, they need to be lying 
flat on a on a stretcher with a towel roll underneath their scapula to get that huge to get that proper airway positioning. And then if you're bagging a kid or bagging any other person, I strongly recommend that you use a two provider technique to effectively perform ventilations. We know data shows that providers' hands get really tired, and the only way to effectively manage a child's uh, or manage an airway using BVM is with a two provider technique. So always call for more assistance. And this shouldn't be a time where you're skimping on help if you've got a kid in the back of the ambulance that you are uh, bagging. You should be using as many providers as you need to make sure this child's safe. The other thing I can be sensitive to is what the EMS providers did. It sounds like they wanted to keep this kid safe during transport by, by keeping him in his car seat. Um, but I would say that in this scenario, if someone's so sick that you're bagging them, you should have them out of the car seat to, and onto the cot um, and then properly strapped in on the cot as best you can. Um, because at that point, their, their airway status is going to be more important than making sure that they're safe in a car seat. Um, the last point that I'd want to bring up, you know, this is just a little side note. Linda did mention that the child was born with prolonged QT. Um, and while I, it sounds like this kid was probably seizing, the big complication that can happen with prolonged QT is a sudden cardiac ventricular dysrhythmia where they go on to have a cardiac arrest. Um, very similar to what happens to uh, young children who are playing basketball and then die on the field. Um, so often those cardiac arrests will present as syncope with a little bit of shaking and we can be confused that that child's seizing when either they're in cardiac arrest or they had an episode of a really bad cardiac dysrhythmia that um, stopped blood flow to their brain. So I think that even in this kid, another being on continuous uh, cardiac monitoring with at least a four lead would probably have been really important with this child as well. Thank you. Uh, and then our uh, third and final case, uh, this is a uh, case of a 14-month-old child. Um, the patient uh, arrived to the ED unresponsive with very agonal breaths. Uh, the arrival SpO2 was 58%, uh, and this child is very acidotic as well. Uh, so the the staff felt that the pa that this did not you know, just started the door to get to that level. They felt that this had happened over a number of minutes. Uh, the patient was reported to have um, had a seizure and the mom gave uh, diastat at home. Uh, and again, the hospital's concern was that agonal breaths were missed, were, were, uh, were not, you know, uh, caught and that there was no attempt to give oxygen by blow-by. So when we reviewed the, um, the report, and we actually, these last two cases, we actually met with the crew to discuss as well. Um, the patient was reported to have had a grand mal seizure that went on for 10 minutes. Um, the mom gave five milligrams of diastat prior to uh, EMS arrival, um, in that the seizure stopped approximately 10 minutes after that. Um, and it also reports that the mom did, a, did some rescue breathing uh, prior to EMS arrival as well. Um, so the patient was postictal when the med unit arrived. Um, they were unable to establish an IV at that time. The patient's condition started to improve and the patient looked around. Um, and then in the, in the report, it highlights that some of this change appeared, uh, a drop in SpO2 appeared just before hospital arrival. Um, and um, again, concern for you know that low of deterioration um, of of the SpO2. Um, and again, we had you know we were concerned about you know continuous monitoring, um, you know whether or not 
Uh, O2 was continued on this patient throughout transport where they monitored, you know, the similar kind of concerns um, as well as, you know, this patient was, was post-dictal, it had a prolonged seizure and all that should they have been placed on, you know, end tidal CO2. And then how does, you know, rectal diastat influence uh, the care by medics afterwards? Um, so, you know, this is, you know, Sometimes we, we get reports from the hospital and, you know, one of the reasons we do meet with crews is to, to see, you know, how this did play out. So, and we did that, that in this case and it brought up some, some very real concerns. So, um, Dr. Engel, would you like to add to this? Yeah, uh, this was a really great case. Um, it really did help meeting with the crew because it does sound like there were a couple other things going on in the hospital didn't really know about on this one. But a couple things that could be pointed out, you know, we've talked about continuous pulse oximetry monitoring. Um, the other thing is continuous entitled CO2 monitoring in somebody who is either continually seizing or postictal, especially in these kids who we know that can sometimes have really severe hypoventilation and get really tired after a seizure. Uh, knowing the benefits of entitled CO2 can really, really help you monitor them for hypoventilation or decreased ventilation so you know if they're starting to have airway compromise problems because you have it up on your continuous uh, monitor uh, while you're transporting. The other thing if you have them on continuous entitled CO2 is you already have readily, uh, ready access to provide some supplemental oxygen for these kids because they should have a nasal cannula in. Um, so then you, if somebody starts getting a little hypoxic, you don't have to mess around in the back and be a moving ambo to hook up some oxygen for the kid. So if you have them on continuous entitled CO2 early, um, you can just turn the oxygen on as opposed to having to connect the find the oxygen tubing connect it put it on the patient all those things can take time well we know a pediatric patient doesn't do well being hypoxic um and the last thing is you know i think when somebody gives rectal diastat prior to our arrival i guess i would consider this uh as first round of iv medications so if you arrive on scene mother's given or father or somebody's given rectal diastat um you should be aggressive in treating with intramuscular midazolam, as we talked about earlier, um, after a couple of minutes of the rectal diastat trying to, to take action. So if they're still seizing or they have another seizure, just continue, consider it as your second round of medication. And like we're talking about in our, our guidelines, that's going to be uh, your purview to go ahead and give that before even talking to online medical control. So I would just be continue to be aggressive, even if rectal diastat was given, to try and abort this seizure as quickly as possible. A question for you. Um, so these patients, in, in this case, a 10-minute seizure, um, mom gave rectal diastat. You know, she's, she's um, I believe it was, uh, they were in a store when this happened. So patient had not received any oxygen for that 10-minute period of, of uh, seizing. Is it safe to say that, you know, we need to be aggressive with this patient because they had a 10-minute seizure. There was no EMS there. They've been without oxygen for that whole time, and that, that should be concerning on arrival. Absolutely. You're 100% right. That's super concerning. Kids do not tolerate hypoxia really well. If they had a 10-minute seizure, you got to remember that's already past that five-minute, what I you can consider like kind of safe period. Um, and you should be aggressively managing their vital signs, trying to normalize as much as possible with supplemental oxygen, monitoring throughout, and then early and often uh, medication administration to make sure that uh, you abort the seizure as quickly as possible and then have them in direct line of sight so they don't seize again. If somebody sees for 10 minutes, I would say that they're a higher risk of having another seizure while in your care. So this is a really concerning patient um, from the get-go. 
Excellent. And again, I want to thank all the, the crews that provide the details and discussion when we, when we have the, the Zoom reviews um, with our providers. These have been very, very valuable, uh, I know, to us and to providers to engage in discussion, to work to system improvements, and in this case, led directly to revising and updating our seizure guideline. Yeah, Linda, thank you. That's, yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's, you feel as you go through a couple of these cases that you start harping on the system and all these things are terrible, but when it comes to CQIP, you know, that it helps drive the system and, and helps us make those changes that we need to, uh, to enable the providers to make the, uh, the right treatments and the right decisions out there. Um, and, you know, if all the cases went beautifully and perfect and, and nothing ever went wrong or it, there'd be nothing to learn from. Um, so these scenarios are great. Uh, just a friendly reminder with the newsletter coming out, there is a kudos case on there that is a pediatric seizure case. Um, so we do have a number in the county that are going really well as well. Um, but like you said, as you know, these CQIP cases, the discussions with the providers, the things that we're finding, uh, they really helped us to, to drive changes in some of those updates that we see in those guidelines updates. Uh, Dr. Claire, I know you had a couple more points to, to touch on with those uh, some of those guideline updates. So, yeah. Um, so, as as you were saying, a lot of the QI process. This is a perfect example of where we take information we're getting from our QI process to guide change to our protocols. Um, so, some of the big stuff. Um, one of the key things is our use of IM and IV midazolam uh, for the abortion of a acute uh, seizure. Um, we're now kind of based on the data that Dr. Engel was talking about, we're definitely now allowing a second dose to be given without calling online medical control. Um, the dosing for that, um, again, I'm having some electronic snafus, but at the pediatric level, uh, it's 0.25 mg per kg um, for the IM dose. Um, and so we're considering pediatric patients under 40 kilos. Now for the IV dose, um, uh, Dr. Engel or Linda, if you could help me out, I just don't want, I want to make sure I'm giving you the right information. I know adults for IV, it would be four milligrams, but uh, what's the mix per kid for the, the IV midazolam? Um, I'm just having a hard time accessing that. Yeah, the IV midazolam for a pediatric patient is going to be 0.1 mg per kg up to 2 milligrams for our patients less than 40 kilos. And then as you said, as Got you it. your muscular dose, it's 0.25 mg per kg up to 5 milligrams for our patients less than 40 kilos. Got it. Thank you, Dr. Engel. Yeah. So, and like I said, we can go now with a second dose without getting online medical control involved. Um, so I think that adds a little more um, nidus and decision-making onto our providers. We believe that this is a perfectly good change. It's a safe change. It gives a little more power to our providers in the field to do what they know is right. Um, one of the other things that we, we talk about in, this, in, in the update, too, is as, as uh, Linda was talking about earlier and Dr. Engel was talking about earlier, is the idea that you need to be constantly reassessing your patient. And so the new guidelines are really emphasizing the idea that you have direct line of sight on the patient uh, so that you're able to see if the patient is continuing to seize, going back and having a new seizure, uh, what's going on with your pulse oxes, because as we were saying, uh, pediatric patients do not tolerate airway compromise and hypoxia very well. 
Um, this is the, uh, the scary acute issue that a lot of seizures can cause. So we need to be monitoring them and have a direct line of sight to see if any new seizure activity is occurring. Um, part of this is also can be very, very tricky because as we were talking about earlier, you know, it's not always that typical uh, tonic-clonic seizure that we're watching out for. It could be other atypical presentations. It could just be lip smacking and a little bit of uh, gaze staring and loss of consciousness. Um, and it's something that we deal with even in the emergency department on a busy day. We're not always, you know, direct line of sight to all of our patients. Um, and it, it's something that we have to watch very closely. Um, so that that's the big changes to this this uh, new policy is second dose of Versed, um, as well as making sure you're constantly reassessing your patient, have direct line of sight for any new new seizure activity. So that's kind of rounding those out. Uh, give it back to you, Jeff, unless there's anything else anyone wants to highlight with this. Well, thanks, Dr. Clare. Uh, yeah, and that kind of wraps us up towards the end here. Uh, I will open the floor for anybody on the panel that might have any other thoughts uh, they'd like to toss in today. I'm seeing a lot of shaking heads, but for everybody to get over the unmute button if they'd like to. Their chin's good. Sure. Good, good, good. Jeff, Excellent. I, I, oh. Jeff, I can add one thing if you want real quick. Go right ahead. Um, so, you know, we've had a lot of discussion on this and, and I've always heard the mantra um, through a lot of my training was, um, you know, if, if it's a seizure due to an epileptiform seizure, right, so this, this patient has some abnormal, or abnormal synchronous activity going on in the brain, you give them Versed or any other benzodiazepine, they get better, right? However, if the seizure continues or it's a persistent seizure that keeps going on, you really, that's when you have to say, okay, this is due to hypoglycemia or fever or other electrolyte disturbances that you need to reverse, right? The, the mantra is that seizures that self-terminate aren't due to any other like secondary medical causes, they're just a seizure. Um, and I, I, I tend to still teach, teach paramedics and med students on that, but I'm just curious what other people think about that, that mantra that, you know, seizures, secondary seizures due to something else, they're not going to stop on their own. They, you've got to reverse the underlying cause. Um, and that, that guides some of our clinical management. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts on that or if that, that continues to be a good mantra. Well, I know I certainly like it. You chase Dr. Engel away. away <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think Pat's point is uh, well taken that, you know, if you're going down a treatment algorithm and somebody's not getting better, the, you got to think, what am I missing for this patient? What am I missing every time? And I, I, I fully uh, agree with that, that you have to consider alternative diagnoses if what you're doing doesn't seem to make the, it doesn't seem to be making the patient better. Terrific points to everybody. With that, I'm guessing everybody's going to be good for the this episode. I appreciate everyone joining me today. Um, for those online uh, and those that are listening in the near future, I appreciate it. Uh, last thing to add, if you have uh, questions after the fact, or if you have topic areas that you'd like to hear this panel discuss, or some panel of some configuration discuss in the future, uh, please feel free to shoot an email over to emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov. Uh, we will definitely take that into consideration and see what we can put together for you. So 
Uh, thank you to all my panel. Thank you to all listeners. I hope everybody has a wonderful day. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time. Bye now.